I just thank you guys for being here this morning and uh, being a part of our church today uh, for our second service and, and uh, on Easter Sunday. So um, we, you know, we come together on Easter Sunday and we talk about the resurrection. It's not the only day that we talk about the resurrection. It's not the only day that it is important, but it is, is, it is a special day for us to be able to uh, reiterate and articulate the gospel in a way that perhaps um, that we, we don't every single uh, day. And so uh, that's what we're here to do uh, today. In uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, that's the book that we're in right now uh, as a church, and we're walking through it, and we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so we'll be picking up there in just a minute. And what's going on in Corinth, and that's the city uh, that this church is in, that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to. And he's writing a letter to them, and he, he's saying, you guys are kind of messed up. You're, you, you've got some problems, you've got some, got some issues, and uh, so I, I need to correct those issues. And so this is, this is kind of a really messed up church, and it's probably a lot like our church in many respects. And so the Apostle Paul, he's been correcting various things from infighting to uh, like some sexual immorality of, of some of the worst kind and of uh, all different kinds of things that he's dealing with. It was just kind of this craziness that was happening in this church. And so these, these people are uh, a little bit messed up, and so the Apostle Paul is correcting those things. And in chapter 15, he gets to uh, essentially what one of their root problems is. And the, the problem is ultimately that they've misunderstood Christianity, and they've looked at it in a way that they, they should not be looking at it uh, in, in that respect. And so what he's going to tell them is he's saying, this is how you need to rightly view Christianity. And we in, American, uh, in America today uh, have uh, very much the same problem. And that is because we have uh, very frequently thought that we understood what the Bible says about Jesus or what the Bible says about Christianity, and we've imposed on that what, what we think it actually means, when in reality, it, it's perhaps something different altogether than what we've understood, and so we need to be corrected as well. And so let me read the passage for you, and then we'll, we'll go through it here in just uh, over a few moments here. The Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So the Apostle Paul uh, begins by 
telling these people, he says, I need to remind you uh, what I communicated to you some time ago. And some of us may need to be reminded. Some of us perhaps grew up in the church. We had some type of experience with the church. Uh, oftentimes those experiences are bad for one reason or another. And, uh, and some of them can be good. And some of them can be, you know, it was, it was okay. Uh, some people have had an experience, uh, you know, maybe they went to youth group as, as a young child. And, and, uh, and what happened in those situations was they heard the message of the cross. They heard the message of the gospel. And they, they made a profession of faith, meaning they said that they believed it at that point, and then they went on with their, their life. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's saying, I need to remind you of this because there's an error in this church. And the error in this church is that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so he's correcting their, uh, their issues here, and he's going to tell them what is the most important thing. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. He says, this is what I communicated to you, and, and this is what you need to understand. And so he's preached to them. The gospel message comes out, and it's, it, it is communicated to these people. And what happens next is, I preached to you which you received. So was, there was this point in their life where they had received this gospel message. They had received the good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. And so he says that, that you've received this. So there was a point in their life where they, they heard it, they received it. And then third, what happens was this, is that they are, now they're standing in it. So he's saying, if you're a brother in Jesus Christ, then what's happening with you is that the gospel isn't just something that you believed back then, but it's something that you're standing in or that you go on standing in or that's something that you're living in. You're living in the context of what he calls good news that he communicated to them some time ago. But too frequently, people view the gospel or the good news in a way that says, I received it back then and then I went on. I received it back then, and then I went on to doing good works. I received it back then, and then, you know, I just, I live however I want. I don't really engage with the church. I'm not really a disciple of Jesus. But Paul is telling them, he's saying that that is not the way that this goes. The way that this must go is that, uh, that, that you hear the gospel message, you receive it, you intake it internally, and then you go on standing in it, and you go on believing it, you go on hearing it, and then what takes place is this, he says, and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. Now, Christianity talks about being saved all the time. And, and too frequently, that it seems like it's a word, the word saved, is a word that has not a lot of meaning to us today. We say, yeah, I don't really need to be saved. I don't need this idea of salvation. I'm not even sure what he's talking about. But actually, what happens in our culture all the time is the reality that we always believe that we need saving. In fact, you sitting right here believe that you need saving. It's just a matter of it's something else. It's something different, perhaps, than what you actually believe. And so uh, what Paul is saying is he's saying that you are being saved by this gospel. So where do we see this in culture, this desire to be saved that is disconnected from, uh, from Jesus? Well, if you ever watch the show uh, the, the Voice, 
Um, and uh, I don't know why you would, but uh, if, if you do watch it, um, it's, it's okay. It's okay. But if you watch that show, uh, one of the things that you see on this television show is just people, they, ha- they have this breakout moment, and then all of a sudden, like, all of their dreams are coming true, and, and great things are going to happen for them. But I was reading an article recently from The Atlantic where they basically stated this, that so many people that go on The Voice, the, the show The Voice, never get to really, you know, the, the type of fame that came from perhaps other shows or things of that nature. And so there's this fantastic article out of uh, the, the Voice, and it says something, um, not out of The Voice, out of The Atlantic about The Voice, and it says something, I think, really interesting about our culture. And so uh, the author states this, it, he's quoting uh, uh, Carson Daly right before a commercial break, and it says this, coming up, a, man, a family man takes one last shot at his dream is the way Daly introduces one contestant this season, Josh Hoyer. This is a strange thing to say, considering Hoyer is already a working musician with a band called Josh Hoyer and Soul Colossal that has toured internationally. This isn't to criticize Hoyer or the many other contestants over the years who already made a living through music for striving for more, but it is to criticize the show for reinforcing the pernicious or the destructive idea that moderate success doing what you love is not the modern American dream superstardom is. Superstardom. It's it's not that um, just performing... Uh, uh, you know, at, at a regular venue or performing throughout the country, it's, that's not enough. It's not, uh, performing internationally is not enough. Um, like, a, a, all of the accolades and all of the things that this guy, and consequently us as well, that, that, that he has received and we have received, it just isn't enough. And the voice is doing some, is saying something about our culture. It's recognizing something that's very real and very apparent, and that is, it is not that moderate success. Moderate success is not what I want. I want superstardom. I, I want to be a, a superstar. And you, you might say, you know what? I, I don't necessarily uh, need to be a superstar. I, I could, I, you know, I could, I, could be, I could be something else. I could be, I could, uh, be uh, you know, a great family man, or I could, I could have a great business, or I could have great friends. I could enjoy uh, peace in, in every situation. And really, what we're looking at and what we're seeing in our lives is the reality that I, it's not just that I want moderate success. I want ultimate success. I want something else, and I want something else, and I, and I need something else. And I can tell you that this idea of performing internationally, really, uh, it, uh, you know, it, it really isn't that great. I mean, I, I've performed in Honduras before in front of 50,000 uh, adoring fans that had never actually seen a band before, but that's not that big of a deal. I went there on a mission trip, and we were in this massive uh, uh, soccer stadium, and I was sitting there performing with uh, some other friends of mine uh, for this big uh, e- evangelistic uh, thing that we were putting on, and so I'm sitting there, and, I, and I, was, I was the star of the show. I don't know if you know this or not, but I was the star, and uh, I, I actually got to sing the happy song 
song in Spanish. And I can even kind of remember some of the words like cantaria, sin para, por lo que. And people were jumping and there was dust raising and people were just going crazy. And then we, we uh, uh, left that stadium and then like the next day we were at different churches. And I went from church to church to place to place and I was performing the happy song over and over again in Spanish. And people would just go crazy. I was this incredible rock star for a very brief time in my life. And I remember uh, what the, the, the night that we had the, the, the 50,000 people, I remember this girl coming up to the stage, and she was like, she's like, you know, I, I have something for you, and I can understand what she was saying. I, I have something, and I was like, what, what is this that you have for me? And she was like, no, come here, you know, and I'm on this really tall stage, and so I get down on my knees, and so she gives, it's a necklace, I can see, and it's got some type of vial on it, and so I was like, oh, is that for me? Like, okay, that's, that's, that's cool. And so she wants to put it on me. Like, she wants to touch me. And so I, but the necklace was too small, and my, or rather, my head is too big. And so I'm sitting there, and she's trying to pull it down over my face and down over my ears and my, my, you know, it's digging into my skin and finally get it on. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And so I go back to the, the, the bus with every, all the other musicians or whatever, and my buddy looks at it and he says, what's, what's the vial say? I said, I have, I have no idea. What, what's it say? I mean, it's like right up here on my neck, and I'm like, read it. He says, it says Tito, and I was like, who the heck is Tito? So I got Tito's necklace when I was in, uh, when I was in Honduras, so I have a, a little bit of fame in this, but all of us are searching for some type of superstardom in life. And the truth is, is that that superstardom is actually what we believe is saving us. It may not be success on a massive stage. It may not be in front of adoring fans, but it may just be in front of your adoring family. It may be in front of your adoring family. And what defines you so many times is whether you've achieved that success or whether you have not achieved that success. And, it, and what it does is, is we're constantly telling ourselves, like, if, if this would happen, or because this has happened, now I have real meaning in life. But what we find out is that when we lose that, when you lose the one thing that you desired more than anything, whether it was the, the, the family, or it was the business, or it was superstardom, or it was even just something like be, being able to perform on any stage, or something like that, what we find out is that this is the thing that defines me, and if I lose this, what takes place is this, is absolute devastation in my life, where I say, you know what, life is not worth living anymore. Are we, are, we're constantly looking for that one chance. This is my last shot at stardom. This is my last shot at family. This is my last shot. And you know what that ultimately is? It's saving. It's saving. It's salvation that we seek for every single day. You don't call it salvation. You call it something else. You fill in the blank with the thing that you desire most, and you believe that this is the thing that will define you. How do I know this? Because all of humanity is the same. All of humanity is desiring a savior. We just don't call it a savior. We call it whatever it is. It's, it's my life goal. Jenny Allen uh, wrote an, an 
incredible book. My wife has been reading it, and um, at least she tells me it was incredible. And, um, but she, she showed me this quote the other day that I thought was just fantastic. She says this in her book, Nothing to Prove. She says, it is the mercy of God to allow all of our dreams here to come true and find that they all disappoint and nothing on earth but him will satisfy. It is also the mercy of God to let us lose everything on earth and see even then that he is enough for us. Following Jesus does result in our happiness. It is just a backward way to it. See, God is so gracious that when he's pursuing us, one of the things that we find is this, is that when we get to that point that we have always desired, where it's, it's where I find true meaning and value in life. When I get to that point finally, that's when I'll feel like everything's okay. When I finally get to this point when I'm married or when I'm able to have kids or, or when something takes place, when I finally get to that point where I feel like I have real meaning and value, then I'll be there. But what she says here is that God is merciful in allowing our dreams to fail us, either when we get them and we say, I'm finally there, and then, oh, it doesn't feel like the fulfillment that I was wanting, that I was really desiring, and I still feel empty even though I've made all the money that I wanted to, even though I got the stuff that I, that I really desired most. And so what we find out from this uh, passage in 1 Corinthians is that saving is something that every single one of us is searching for. But too often in American Christianity, there are so many people that believe that somehow I am saved, and yet what didn't take place is they either didn't hear the gospel, they didn't hear the reality of it, they heard the American dream gospel. The American dream gospel, which says God is, uh, that America is a Christian nation, uh, in God we trust, and so therefore um, God is going to bless you if uh, you do good, good things, and so therefore this is American Christianity. God's blessing us. We're awesome. We're Americans, and I think America is awesome, but... Spiritually speaking, somehow we've tied like uh, being Amer an American to being a Christian. And so we have this idea that God, he's going to bless me as long as I do good things to him. And so, but that's not the right gospel. That's not the truth. That's a different gospel. It's receiving the right gospel. It's standing in the correct gospel. It is at that point then what takes place is that true salvation takes place and what Paul cautions here is he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, here's the thing, is that a profession of faith, a point in my life where I said I believe in Jesus, that is never acted upon, shows that I never actually had a profession of faith. Because Paul says, if you, receive, if you receive this, if you hold fast to it, unless you believed in vain, unless there was really no value to your belief. And so what Paul is cautioning against here is he's saying, there's got to be real belief in Jesus Christ that has tangible results in your life. The results in your life do not save you. The results in your life prove that you are saved. 
They prove that, there's, that there is something that's happened in your life. And it goes from this. It goes from, okay, my life is about me and my salvation coming through the things that I want, the things that I get, the things that I have, or the things that I didn't get, that I don't have, that I've lost. It's not coming from that. It's coming from Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, it's hard to equate those two things. Like for Josh Hoyer, who's the guy in the, the article here, it's like, okay, like his last chance at stardom is pales in comparison to Jesus Christ and him crucified and him saving Josh Hoyer. But too often we miss it. And so what does it look like to not believe in vain And so Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what he has, what he preached to them, what he spoke to them is the most important thing. And he got it. Uh, He received it from Jesus himself. It was passed on through the apostles. It was passed on from Jesus to him. It's not something that he made up. He didn't wander out in the woods and find something over here, over there, and then, oh, look, there's a new religion. No, this is something that was passed on to him. And so what he says about it is this, that it is of first importance, what he's about to communicate here. What is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Stop there for a second. Why is Christ dying for our sins of first importance? Why does he not start with Jesus' teaching? Why doesn't he start with Jesus' manifesto from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? where Jesus goes through and he's talking about how blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so I've got to be poor in spirit, and I've got to mourn, and I've got to be meek, and I've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I've, What is Jesus saying there? I mean, like, really, the truth is that most people believe that what is of first importance in the Christian religion is that you live like Jesus did and you follow his Sermon on the Mount. But what is Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? What's he, what's he doing there? He's showing us a standard of perfection that you and I obviously miss all the time. See, some people conflate the idea that Jesus was perfect, and so we should walk like Jesus. He was our moral example, and so therefore I am also to be his moral example, and that's all that it was. He didn't you know, just come to die for sins. He wasn't God, you know, whatever. But here's the problem. If that's what Jesus was doing, if Jesus was showing us an example so that we would follow it, Jesus is a, a, a horrible, horrible failure in many ways because the world isn't getting better per se, and, uh, and Christians so many times do not live up to this. So what's the problem? Like the teaching is not what's, what's keeping us. The teaching is, is, is really a standard of righteousness that Jesus is saying, I fulfill this 100%. I fulfill this 100%. And so then he goes on to say, like it's not just that murder is wrong, but the roots of murder are wrong. It's, it's, that, it's not that you just shouldn't kill your brother or sister or whoever it is. It's that you shouldn't even have hateful thoughts or angry thoughts or someone because that in and of itself, the roots of those things are what make you wrong. It's not just that I shouldn't commit adultery. It's that my heart 
should not even desire someone else. That that in and of itself is adultery. Jesus is saying, not only, even if you've kept so many different rules, not only are you just kind of shipwrecked or, or just kind of sinful, you're really sinful. You do not match up to who I am, Jesus says. So Paul does not begin with the Sermon on the Mount. Paul doesn't begin with Jesus being this fantastic uh, person, and, and so therefore you be a fantastic person. He says this, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is the number one thing in Christianity. Don't forget it. Live by it. Stand in it. Be a part of it. Walk in it. And he says that Christ died for our sins. Now, why is that important? Well, the first thing that we're affirming is this, is that Christ, he was a living human being who was also God in the flesh. So we can look at the scriptures and we can see this, but we can also look at other sources, such as from a gal by the name of uh, Elisa Childers, who compiled uh, several uh, different uh, historical uh, documents. And what she says is this. She says that there are uh, 10 historical facts about Jesus from non-Christian uh, sources, uh, and they're provable. She says, uh, number one, he was known to be wise and virtuous. And from Josephus, from A.D. 37, he was a uh, historical historian. Well, an ancient historian. How about that? Um, at this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. She also says this, he had a brother named Jesus, and she quotes Josephus again. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought, them, uh, and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. He was known to perform miracles. We could talk about more, but there's historical people that talk about Jesus. So Jesus was a real person. He was a real person in a real time, and as a result, we're talking about somebody who was real. He existed. So Jesus, he lived, but then secondly, he also died. He died, and that's also a historical fact. She goes on to say this. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Uh, she quotes Cornelius Tactus, who was born in A.D. 56, and says this. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And then Josephus also confirms this by saying, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. So not only do we have this life of Jesus, but we have the death of Jesus. This is what the Gospels uh, lay out, and indeed throughout uh, the whole, all of the Scriptures, they lay out the fact that we're waiting for Jesus and so forth, and that he is going to die, but we can also look at historical sources and see this. And so he says, he says, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. It's not just that he died, it's that he died for a purpose. And so what was going on there is that Jesus was substituting himself for us. It would be a little bit like if you decided that you were going to take uh, you know, a flight somewhere. And let's say you got on any airline, maybe United. 
And uh, so you got on a United Airlines flight. And let's just say that, uh, um, you know, you, uh, you were on a flight that was slightly overbooked, right? And uh, let's just, again, just assume, just in, no, nothing, no relation to modern events, but let's just assume that uh, they wanted your seat. They say, we're overbooked. We, you know, we have to have your seat or we are going to give you the customary beating. And... Um, <laughs> And let's just say, by chance, that Jesus was sitting just a couple seats down, and Jesus sees what's going on, and this is a horrible, horrible illustration, but let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, that Jesus sees the argument, and he says, you know what? I'll take the beating, and you can have my seat. And so Jesus takes the beating. Again, horrible illustration, because that would also make United Airlines God, and so, which is not good. Um, what this is saying is that Jesus substitutes himself for me. Jesus substitutes, even though when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you see the perfection of Jesus, and you see the fact that he, that he fully believes what he says and he fully accomplishes, and the scriptures show over and over again that Jesus acts perfectly. And he says on the Sermon on the Mount, like, this is my manifesto, this is what I live by, this is what you should live by, and what it's just showing is this, is that in comparison to me, like when I, when I hold up the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments or whatever you want to hold up and you say, you say well, I kind of basically keep those. I don't really, I, I haven't stabbed anybody lately, at least not recently, and so I'm, I'm, I basically keep those. And Jesus says, it's not that you didn't stab somebody. It's that you were just angry with your brother that makes you so sinful and so unable to actually save yourself. Your salvation cannot come from you. It cannot come from your life. It can't come from you trying to be a good person and trying to be a good family man or trying to be a good business person or what have you. It's saying this, somebody has to go for you. And so Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul mentions that twice. In accordance with the scriptures. Why is he saying that? Here's why. When you look at the scriptures and you understand what's happening with them, and and, and I don't mean just kind of a, a cursory reading, but you, you could even get that from a, a cursory reading. But I would just say that when you begin to look at the scriptures and you understand what's happening, what you find out is this, is that all of Christian scripture is ultimately about Jesus. All of it is pointing to Jesus. Every bit of it is pointing to his life. It's pointing to what he's done when, when, uh, when Jesus uh, is raised from the dead, he's uh, walking down this road. He runs into some of his disciples, and they were really depressed, and they said, we had hoped that Jesus was going was gonna to do all these things, and he was going to be the one. And Jesus then says, don't you guys understand the Old Testament? Don't you understand what's happening? And he begins to lay out for them what, you know, all of the places in the Old Testament before Jesus uh, life on earth, where Jesus is mentioned, where it's talking about him. It's pointing to the Messiah. It's pointing to how Jesus is going to come for the salvation of sinners. So what does that mean? Because what Christian scripture claims is that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus Christ in all of history. 
the, cre- the created world from beginning to end. It's all about Jesus. So history is not just history. History is ultimately his story. It's ultimately about Jesus. And so what is, why is he telling us in accordance with the scriptures? Because of this. Because I'm always trying to get my salvation from living on a stage that where people are adoring fans and trying to give me tiny necklaces from their boyfriend. Or I'm always trying to find a way to save myself through, I, I just want a promotion. All I want is to have a good family and a faithful wife. Or all that I want is for my business to go well. Or all that I want. No, my salvation keeps trying to come from those things outside the created world. But what Jesus is saying to you today and what his resurrection proves is this. Is that because history is his story... When you enter into relationship with him, you receive, you stand, and you believe who he is and what he's done. You enter into what history really is about. You enter into who the real superstar is. And no longer do you have to save yourself. And no longer do you have to denigrate yourself because you can't save yourself. And no longer do you have to suffer. And no longer do you have to be so alone even though you've gotten everything that you desired. But guess what? Jesus saves you from your deepest desires and your most critical failures. Standing in the gospel. Standing in that and saying, this is... This is, Jesus, this is what he has for me. This is what changes your life. And so Paul goes on to say, he said, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and, and then to all the apostles. And then he appears to me. Paul is saying, like these people, some of them are still alive. You could go talk to them. This is a historical document. It's not something that I made up. It's not something that, that Paul made up. It, it's, it's something that God inspired, and it's about history, and it's real. It is a series of historical documents. And Paul is saying there's real-life proof. These people saw it. And so he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Remember what he said earlier? He said, unless you believed in vain. Paul's saying, but God's grace towards me was not in vain. Why? He looks at his successes, and he says, all of my success that I've had in life since coming to know Jesus is not because of something that I have done. It's not something that I created in my life. It's not my salvation coming true in my life finally. And oh, yay, I just, yeah, this, is, this is me. I'm so fantastic. Now I'm the superstar. No, he's saying, he's saying, you know what? It's the grace of God in my life. There is a 
underlying humility about his life now because of what he knows. He knows, I don't meet the standard of the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments, but God, in his graciousness, goes to the cross for me, and more than just go to the cross, he doesn't just die, he's buried, and he's resurrected, and so what Jesus says is true because history is ultimately his story. He is over it. He rules it. He reigns over it. He is king, ultimately, and the king gets to determine, like, I am showing my grace and my mercy on this person. And the people who receive it are people who say, I am the worst, and yet God has been gracious to me. I am somebody who doesn't deserve his grace, and yet he has lavished it on me with his incredible mercy At the foundational level of somebody who's a Christian, there should be a level of humility that says, I did not save myself. God went to the cross in Jesus and died for me. He took the punishment that I deserve for not fulfilling the law, for not fulfilling the Sermon on the Mount, for not fulfilling the Ten Commandments. He took the punishment, so therefore I don't have to punish myself knowing that I have dropped the ball knowing that I have been somebody who has failed multiple times. He is the one who went to the cross. I don't need to punish myself anymore. That's trying to crucify Jesus all over again. I don't have to suffer from that anymore. That is that Jesus has spoken to this. He's forgiven me. You do not have to walk around with guilt and shame. Jesus took the guilt. Jesus took the shame. He went to the cross. And you don't have to have it anymore. And you get to walk in newness of life. And as a result, what happens in Paul's life, he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. He said, you know what? You know what the grace of God did to me? The grace of God caused me to work so much harder to live for him. See, people call Christianity a crutch. They say, you know, you just use that because, you know, you, you fail and you, you don't get along in life and you don't know how to work. You know, you know, pe- prideful people say things like that. Um, but, you, you know, Christianity is such a crutch. And I just want to tell you something. That Paul didn't believe that it was just a crutch. It is a crutch. But it's, it's, it's not less than that. It's more than that. Christianity is a full-on wheelchair for people that know that they need it. For people that know that they need it. It's for people that said, I, I think I've made it, and yet I don't feel like I made it. I still feel destitute inside. Or it's people who say, I, I know that I didn't make it. And I, and I know that I didn't make it. And, and, I, and I feel like such a failure. See, Christianity isn't just a crutch, it's a full-on wheelchair for people who say, I am no longer trying to be the savior in my life. I don't need just Christianity to help me hobble along. No, I'm gonna sit down and allow Jesus to be the one who propels me through life. He's gonna be the one who saves me. He's gonna be the one that animates my life. He's gonna be the one that brings me grace. He's gonna be the one who brings me success. He's the one that I'm gonna be living in. The invitation of Christianity is this to every single person there. As long as you're trying to save yourself, you cannot be his. You cannot be his. 
As long as you're trying to save yourself, you will have failure after failure. No matter if you have success or whether you know that you've experienced failure, here's, here's what you're going to find out. It will not suffice. It will not work. Jesus is the only one who can. He's the only one who has shown you through the cross and through his resurrection. There's a mountain of evidence to see. There's a mountain of people who saw him. Won't you believe? Won't you trust him? Won't you walk with him? And don't just make a profession of faith. God, no. Don't do that. Do it like this. Say, I'm going to receive the message. I'm going to stand in, in the message. And as a result, I am going to be saved. He's the one who's saving me because I am somebody who is a sinner and I need his grace by going to the cross and I need his resurrection because he's going to resurrect my life out of the ashes that I've made it. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we ask that you, would, that you would call us to yourselves. Lord, there's, there's people in here who have been in the church for years that have never received the gospel. Lord, there's people in here uh, who have, have just toyed with religion. They've toyed with uh, just investigating. God, they have an opportunity to trust you, to hope in you. They know the most important thing. They've heard it. They're responsible for it now. Lord, I pray that you would allow them the humility, Lord, that you'd grant them uh, the, the ability uh, to say yes to you and to say, I'm going to stop trying to get salvation on my own. Lord Jesus, we pray for that. We ask for that. We pray that you would do something amazing in their lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.